So tonight we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 as we're going through this book verse by verse. I'm really enjoying it. And I have to tell you, as we've been doing so, and as I've been spending time in the Word, looking at the passages, I feel like I'm reading this book for the first time. I'm finding things, and I'm reading stories that never really resonated to me, particularly in these first nine chapters where there's a lot of names. It's like I've always just read them in a hurry, and I don't know why, but as I've been reading them on my own, getting ready for us with our studies in the Word, especially verse by verse, I've just been like, wow, this is an amazing story, and... I've really enjoyed it, and so I hope I can articulate that tonight to us as we read through a couple chapters and get some application from the text. So last week we left off with the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan, how their story and their history, their ancestry, their genealogies, and how they were taken away into captivity when the Assyrian king um, came and took them away. Tiglath-Pilzer took them away. He was a great king, and he conquered them, and off they went, never be heard from again. But again, the context of the book is that the Israelites that were in captivity in Babylon have come back. They're resettling in the land after 70 years. They're reclaiming their territories and their identity. And that's the background to what we're reading with these names. Remember, everybody matters. And if your name's in the Bible, you definitely matter. So chapter 6, verse 1, we come to the tribe of Levi. Now, the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. The children of Amram were Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. And the sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So here's our introduction to the Levites. And again, the 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 sons of Jacob, who is Israel. And Levi was one of those 12 sons. And when they came into the promised land... God didn't give them a territory like he did all the other tribes, but he spread them out through the territory because their ministry was the Lord. Their inheritance was the Lord. And so the Levites were spread throughout all the tribes to represent the Lord and to serve the Lord in that capacity for the other tribes. And that's the background. And Levi's easy to follow. It's three subdivisions, Kohath, Merari, and Gershon. So Levi had three sons, those three. So all the Levites were divided into one of those three genealogies. And um, every high priest was a priest, and every priest was a Levite, and they're all a Levite, but only the Levites, some Levites were not priests or high priests. So let me say that again. The three sons and all their descendants, every one of them would be considered a Levite and identify with with the Levite service and the ministry to the Lord in ministry service. But not all of them were priests. Only the Kohathites were priests. And from the Kohathites and the family of the Kohathites, Moses' brother Aaron, come all the high priests. So only the high priest, who had a very special ministry, we'll get into that at a different time, they could only come from the line of Aaron. And this is these names. That, so this genealogy starts with Levi, with these three subdivisions, and the emphasis on Aaron, because the high priest for the next 1,500 years came from being his descendant. So that's our introduction to them and that original generation and those households. And now we get all these subsequent ancestors and Ancestry.com for the tribe of Levi. Verse 4. So Eliezer, who was the son of Aaron, he was a high priest. He begot Phinehas, who also became a high priest, and thus the succession takes place. Phinehas begot Abshua. Abshua begot Buki, and Buki begot Uzi. Uzi begot Zariah, and Zariah begot Marioth. Marioth begot Amariah, and Amariah begot 
Ahitub, and Ahitub begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Ahimaz, Ahimaz begot Azariah, and Azariah begot Johanan, and Johanan begot Azariah. It was he who ministered as a priest in the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. So that brings the timeline to about 950 B.C. from coming to the land at 1500 B.C. Azariah begot Amariah. Amariah begot Ahitub. Ahitub begot Zadok. Zadok begot Shalom. Shalom begot Hilkiah. And Hilkiah begot Azariah. Azariah begot Sariah. And Sariah begot Jehozadak. Jehozadak went into captivity when the Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem into captivity by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Interesting footnote there, lest any Israelites would forget why they went to Babylon. It wasn't, their problem wasn't the Babylonians. Their problem was a rebellion to the Lord because you see right there, when the Lord carried Judah captive. And that's a reminder to us that a man or a woman can receive nothing unless it comes from the Lord. Ultimately, everything that happens in our lives, whether it seems good or bad in the present timeline, the Lord has a plan in it. And sometimes there's chastening from the Lord, which was, of course, the case for Judah. So just in case they're coming back from 70 years of captivity, bad-mouthing the Babylonians and all that went wrong with them, like, woe is me, the Babylonians did this, Nebuchadnezzar's a bad guy. Hey, that's not the issue. The issue was their forefathers were disobedient, they rebelled against the word, and they went to Babylon because they disobeyed God. Had they just obeyed God, they would have been blessed, and they would have never gone to Babylon. They would have grown up in Babylon. They wouldn't be coming back from Babylon. So it's never about what's going on in the world. It's about what's going on in our heart with the Lord and keeping things right. So even the Holy Spirit reminds them, when the Lord carried him, Judah. Nebuchadnezzar took him in three sequences, took him into captivity, ending in 586 B.C., but ultimately it was the Lord. So lest we get confused, the Lord allowed it, and that's on them. Verse 16, the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So there they are again. These are the names of the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izahar, Hebron, Uziel, the sons of Merari were Mahali and Mushi. Now, these are the families of the Levites according to their fathers. Of Gershon were Libni, his son, Jahath, his son, Zemiah, his son, Joah, his son, Edo, his son, Zerah, his son, and Jethariah, his son. The sons of Kohath were Aminadab, his son, Korah, his son, Asir, his son, Elkanah, his son, Abisaiah, his son, Asir, his son, Tahath his son, Uriel his son, Uzziah his son, and Shaul his son. The sons of Elkanah were Amasiah and Ahimoth. As for Elkanah, his sons were Elkanah were the sons of Elkanah were Zophai, his son Nahath, his son Eliab, his son Jehoram, his son, and Elkanah his son. The sons of Samuel were Joel the firstborn and Abijah the second. The sons of Merari were Mahaliel. Excuse me. The sons of Merari were Mahali, Libni, his son, Shimei, his son, Uzzah, his son, Shimei, his son, Haggai, his son, and Asahiah, his son. Now, the Levite, all the genealogies are important, but they're very important for Levites because no one could take this to themselves. So, no one from another tribe, like say you're with Ephraim of the tribe of Joseph subdivision, and you just wake up and say, you know, I want to be a Levite. And it doesn't work like that. Oh, I want to work in the temple. I want to do the showbread. It doesn't work like that. To serve the Lord during that 1,500-time period of their covenant, the Mosaic covenant from Mount Sinai until Jesus Christ died on the cross and that veil was torn in the temple. If you were going to be serving the Lord in the ministry capacity, 
you had to be genetically of the bloodline, Ancestry.com, of the Levites. You just couldn't take it to yourself. And so their, their lineage is very important because you had to identify with that. Even as the Messiah had to come from the line of the tribe of Judah and not through Jeconiah because the line was cursed through him. We saw that last week. Even so, if you're going to serve, you had to be qualified. You had to be called by the Lord. And it just reminds us that we want to know what we're called to and we want to know what we're not called to. And even as the Lord closes doors and says, that's not for you, that's a good thing. Because when you know what's not for you, he's going to open up what is for you. And that's what effective ministry is. It's not spinning your wheels or striving to be something you're not. It's walking in the fullness of the Spirit and what you truly are called to be. And we'll get into that as we go forward. So this is this genealogy of the Levites, the high priest. It's not a complete list, but it was a, an essential list for, again, the return of those captives, because many of those captives would have been Levites that went away as well. Now we pick it up in verse 31. Now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. Now we read about that story in, in Samuel when they brought the ark of the covenant, you know, to Jerusalem and Man, it was awesome. That's when David was dancing. It was a wonderful story. So this is a summary of it. And so verse 32, they were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they served in their office according to their order. So David had made, he made this music ministry. He put this music ministry together with these amazing musicians and it held in place for hundreds of years. Verse 33, and these are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of Kohath were Heman, the singer, and the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Eliel, the son of Toa, the son of Zuth, the son of Elkanah, the son of Mahath, the son of Amasi, the son of Elkanah, the son of Joel, the son of Azariah, the son of Zephaniah, the son of Tahath, the son of Asir, the son of Abaseph, the son of Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and his brother Asaph, who stood at his right hand, was Asaph the son of Barak, Barkiah, the son of Shimea, the son of Michael, the son of Basiah, the son of Mal, Malchajah, the son of Ethni, the son of Zerah, the son of Adiah, the son of Ethan, the son of Zima, the son of Shimi, the son of Jahath, the son of Gershon, the son of Levi, their brethren, the sons of Merari, on the left, were Ethan, the son of Kishi, the son of Abdi, the son of Malak, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Amaziah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Amzi, the son of Bani, the son of Shimmer, the son of Mahli, the son of Mushi, the son of Mari, the son of Levi. And their brethren, the Levites, were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle of the house of God. Now, verses 31 through where we just stopped here in verse 48, there is that emphasis on the music ministry. We'll get more of this. In just another chapter, we get the music ministry designations, and then we get a lot more of the music ministry later on in the book. So we'll spend more time looking at how God really raised up the worship through David and all the things that he did. And even tonight, of course, we just rejoice that someone with the skill and talent that Jeff could be here leading us in worship tonight and his gifts bless us and bring us into the presence of the Lord, whether we're meditating upon what he's singing or we're singing with him. It's edifying and encouraging and it lifts the soul. And we have these skillful worship leaders that come in rotation 
Jack was here last week. Like I said, Danny Gutierrez will be here next week. They're different personalities, different generations. Actually, we have all three generations now. We have Z, Gen X, and um, millennials leading worship for us. And that is by design that we have that variation of life experience and gifts and interests and song sets. And the one common denominator we know with all of our worship leaders is they, they love the Lord and they're skillful. And aren't we blessed to have that? So that's what David did. He organized and he appointed. He's the king and he appointed people to do it. I'm no king, but the Lord has brought them to us and we're blessed by them and we rejoice in that with the Lord. But I do want to focus for a moment here in application on verse 48, where it says the Levites were appointed to every kind of service in the house of God. This gets our attention because it reminds us of our service in the house of God. We know in 1 Corinthians and Romans that we're told that when a person gives their life to Christ, God gives us spiritual gifts, at least one. And these gifts might vary, but God has given every one of us who confesses Christ as Lord a supernatural equipping. Now, last Saturday, we talked about our skills, like what, what the skills that God gives us and honing those skills to be excellent in the skills, practical talents of life that God's given us, to do it as unto the Lord and refine our skills, get better at what we do, be the best at what we do, and be excellent at what we do for the glory of the Lord and, by the way, for advancement in society because the top 5%, they give 100% and they advance, and everyone else, by and large, don't give 100% and they stall. And if we serve the Lord, we do as unto the Lord. So we saw that last week, practical skills, and that we want to hone those talents and develop those talents for the glory of the Lord and to the benefit of the people for our provision and the people we love and take care of. But here, it's service in the house of the Lord, which brings us to the idea of the spiritual equipping. There in 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that the nose and the hand and the foot, they all have a place in the body of Christ, and no one part of a body, using a human anatomy, can say, you're not important, or I'm more important, but every part of the body serves a purpose, and that, that's God's design. And so the Holy Spirit used that analogy that we can understand of a human body to help us understand that everyone who is born of the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus, they have practical gifts that God gave them as a human being, and they have spiritual gifts that God's given them for the body of Christ. And one of the responsibilities I have as a pastor, and the pastors have, and even the deacons in a way, is to stir up those gifts, to stir you up, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers to stir you up to equip you for the ministry. And the ministry always starts in a local church. That's why it's so important to know your home church. And extends out to connection with the universal church, the overall body of Christ, and to the world as salt and light. But we function as a team, as a family, with supernatural gifts that God gives us. And this text reminds us of that. Even as the Levites had different roles, Gershonites, Moriites, and Kohathites, and the house of Aaron and the high priesthood, we do too. So it's a good reminder that we would ask ourselves, what, what are my spiritual gifts? What are my practical gifts? And do they really belong to the Lord? Am I honing them for the Lord? What are my spiritual gifts? And I'm, am I using them for the Lord? Or even more practically, what's my role in the local church? Am I available to step up? We just had the questionnaire for ladies that want to help plan events. We have a gathering for the men. When the men come together, iron sharpens iron, it stirs things up and gives vision. Having been in ministry for 35 years as a pastor, I've had to 
in a sense, we would use modern terms like be rebranded, like what's my season right now in life? What's this look like? What's my role at Calvary Costa Mesa? What's my role starting a church in Vermont and working a regular job? Or what's our role down the street from Calvary Costa Mesa meeting at a Baptist church? And where's our place? And, you know, we, we do go through seasons of trying to figure out exactly where we stand in the local church and what God has for us. But the most important thing is you, you make yourself available for what God has for you and you seek it out, and you, you seek to enter into it. And sometimes you might seek out to serve in this way, but the Lord closes that door, but that just means you're closer to what he has for you and how he wants you to serve. We have many wonderful examples in this church of men and women who have stepped up to serve the Lord in a phenomenal way in the history of this church. And I'm grateful that I don't have to manufacture anything, but I pray, and I equip, and I watch God raise up, and as you're praying... You dial it in, and you just see things that God does. I was thinking about Chris Gonzalez doing sound tonight, and Chris is pretty humble, so he doesn't appreciate me giving him attention, but I do use him as a great example. Chris and his wife came to this church about eight years ago. We did service together at Montebello with Poncho, and I really liked him. We really liked me. We hit it off. We just immediate friendship right away, like-minded. And then they came here, and they got involved here, and Chris led worship. He was part of that worship rotation for years, Phenomenal job. We all know, maybe you don't know, but Chris is a fantastic worship leader. But a year and a half ago, when Ryland, our main sound guy for years, was moving to Texas, we really, you know, we had Fred Jensen helping out with sound, and he was huge, but we had to add depth. We had to add depth. And as I prayed about it, I approached Chris to step into that role. And he embraced that role. He gave up leading worship to make the sound. That's what he did over a year ago to do that. And at the same time, you know, we had some, we lost quite a few deacons during the COVID thing where everyone got moved around and shuffled around and, and we needed some direction with the deacons. And I asked them to be like the chief of the deacons and organize the schedule and put together a schedule sheet for everybody for services. He embraced that and he did that. And then we needed someone to direct the food and fellowship beginning back in August. And as I prayed about it, I thought, I felt like the Lord put Chris on our hearts to, to do it. And we approached him. And he embraced it. And didn't you enjoy food and fellowship last week? If you were there, it was amazing. And it was just, an, the food was awesome, the sweet spirit, all that. And I use Chris as an example because it says here, they're appointed to every kind of service. There's so many kinds of service in the body of Christ. And if we're like Isaiah the prophet, and we say, here I am, Lord, send me, and we're available, then God will send you. And something else about this too. When you pray for a church, you'll begin to sense your place in the church. Let me say that again. When you pray for a church, you'll begin to sense your place in the church. Randy Crosco, who's now a pastor down the street, was a deacon here for years. And without ever being told to, he took the initiative to always identify new people and to make them feel welcomed. And you would see him out for service, talking to new people all the time. And, you know, Randy's a people person, if there ever was one. He makes you feel so comfortable. And that's a ministry that no one ever really replaced. It's not structured. We don't have a list that says, hey, sign up to greet new people. You can't really manufacture that. You know, that just has to kind of, that's got to be organic. It's just kind of in you. But he was always about others. And he served as a deacon. He did food and fellowship for years, him and many and then now he's a pastor down the street, thriving with the Lord. And we supported him when he went to Asia back in October with incredible ministry to the Philippines and Vietnam and Cambodia. His fruits are fruit. 
They call it the law of attraction. When you're suddenly aware of something, you suddenly see it everywhere. For example, I never had a blue, well, I had a blue truck. The first car I had was blue, but I haven't thought about blue cars ever since. But through our son with Hyundai, Luke, we, had the, we, had, we needed a car, and he, he, we had an option of, the best choice for us was to get this Genesis. It's a blue, it's a blue, it's a blue Genesis, right? And, you know, you got a blue car. It's a little more flashy. Like, ah, oh, Jennifer's like, oh, really? I'm like, no, well, just, it, it's just for a season anyways. So we have the blue Genesis. But you know what happened? As soon as we're driving a blue Genesis, I notice every blue car. I know, I just like, hey, I'm on the freeway. Hey, that's a, blue's a little bit different tint than ours, but similar. I'm like, that's our blue right there. And suddenly all these blue cars that were always there, I recognize them. And psychologists call this the law of attraction. The moment you're thinking about something and aware of it, your mind filters out so many things don't mean anything. But once your mind is focused on something, then your mind picks up the frequency, if you will, to be attracted to those things. That's the way God designed our brain to work. So the moment you're praying for a church and a congregation, suddenly you'll realize and see the needs within that congregation. That's how it works. Randy simply prayed for people and he began to meet all the people. So I would encourage you to pray for this church, to pray for this congregation, to pray for our missionaries. You know, we, we put the sheet out. I told Sam my goal this year is quality over quantity when it comes to missions as far as prayer and giving and everything else. Remember, we did over 200,000 for missions last year. But this is, a, this is a card you can all get. It's all there for you. But last year, I began to look up some of the missionaries, where they lived and what their city looked like, and it made me feel more connected, right? So this year, I'm taking my time, and I really focus on Africa. And, you know, I spent 30 minutes the other day just looking at this uh, area in Tanzania where the, the, the Guahanis live. We've been supporting them for over 10 years. And I decided to start looking at Google Photos and maps, and, you know, they live on a lake that's as big as the Great Lakes. And that's where Dr. Livingston went, and that's where the Dr. Livingston Museum and uh, all they did to free slaves, is it's all there. And a, it's a positive light on the biblical Christianity in a pr- primarily Muslim country. And suddenly I'm aware of things. Like, suddenly these things matter to me. See, that's, that's how God works. When we seek the Lord and we make ourselves available to the Lord, he begins to show us things, and suddenly the dots start connecting, and they, the dominoes line up. The world can call it what it wants to call it, but it's being led by the Spirit, and it's the Lord guiding our minds to work the way he's designed them to work. So I share that with you because Chris once told me, Chris Gonzalez, that he would go through every door God opened to him. So I'm very careful about asking him to go through doors because I know he's going to say yes. So I have to filter it as a leaf. I was like, I know he's going to say yes. He hasn't said no yet. Chris, it's okay to say no, but thus far it's yes. And it's a wonderful example every service because he started here as a worship leader and now he's serving your food. And there's different lessons to learn in each season of serving in the body of Christ. The key is to be available for everything and anything because the Levites were appointed to every kind of service. So if you say, here I am, Lord, then you just never know, and he'll put something on your heart, and then all of a sudden, that law of attraction, the Holy Spirit will start giving you confirmation. Wow, and suddenly there's interest there like never before, and he stirs you up for it. That's how it works. Now, we read on with the household of Aaron. But Aaron and his sons, verse 49, offered sacrifices on the altar of burnt offerings on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. Now, 
These are the sons of Aaron, Eleazar his son, Phineas his son, Abishua his son, Buki his son, Uzi his son, Zariah his son, Marioth his son, Amariah his son, Ahitab his son, Zadok his son, and Amiah, Ahimaz his son. So these are all the high priests. So that's the significance of their names. And now we finish this chapter. There's a, you know, there's a long chapter. There's 81 verses in this chapter. And this is the dwelling place of the Levites. So I'm going to read through this. It's more about their location and placement, which is something that we've talked about the last few weeks in application. Now these are their dwelling places throughout the settlements in their territory. For they were given by lot to the sons of Aaron of the family of the Kohathites. They gave them Hebron in the land of Judah with the surrounding common lands. But the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And the sons of Aaron, they gave one of the cities of refuge, Hebron. Also Libna with its common lands, Jatir, Eshtimoah with its common lands, Hillen with its common lands, Debir with its common lands, Ashen with its common lands, and Beth Shemesh with its common lands. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Geba with its common lands, Elameth with its common lands, Anioth with its common lands, all their cities among the families were 13. So again, the, Israel, the Levites were spread throughout all the 12 tribes on both sides of the Jordan River, and they would be given an area. They didn't have a full territory, but they'd be given like, you know, parcel, these, these are your houses, this is your land that you can plow and grow crops on, that kind of thing. So that's the reference to the common lands. It's like the surrounding territory, like you got the house and a couple of acres. Verse 61. To the rest of the tribe of the Kohathites, they gave by lot 10 cities from half the tribe of Manasseh. And to the sons of Gershon throughout their families, they gave 13 cities from the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. To the sons of Morai, throughout their families, they gave 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, and from the tribe of Zebulun. So the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands to the Levites, and they gave by lot from the tribe of the children of Judah, from the tribe of the children of Simeon, from the tribe of the children of Benjamin, these cities which are called by their names. So notice, because the priesthood, the Levites are divided by three tribes, sub-tribes, Gershon, Merari, and Kohath, even so, that's how they were divvied up amongst the land. So there'd be an emphasis on the subdivision of their tribe in their placement amongst the other 11 or 12 tribes, because when Levite came out, you now have 11 tribes. God took the tribe of Joseph, subdivided Ephraim and Manasseh by the grandsons. We pick it up now in verse 66. Now, some of the families of the, of the sons of Koah, Koath were given cities in the territory from the tribe of Ephraim. And they gave them one of the cities of refuge, Shechem, with his common lands in the mountains of Ephraim. Also, Gezer with his common lands. Uh, Jochamin with its common lands, Beth Horon with its common lands, Ashelon with its common lands, Gathrimon with its common lands, and from the half tribe of Manasseh, Aner with its common lands, Bilium with its common lands, for the rest of the families, for the rest of the family of the sons of Koath, verse 71. From the family of the half tribe of Manasseh, the sons of Gershon were given Golan and Bashan with its common lands, and Ashtaroth with its common lands, and from the tribe of Iskar, Kadesh with his common lands, Debrathos with his common lands, Ramoth with his common lands, Adam with his common lands, and Adam with his common lands, and from the tribe of Asher, Mashal with his common lands, Abdon with his common lands, Hukok with his common lands, 
Rahab with his common lands, and from the tribe of Naphtali, that's more by the Mediterranean Sea up to the north, by Galilee, uh, more by Nazareth where Jesus came from, Kadesh in Galilee with its common lands, Hammon with its common lands, Kirjiathim with its common lands. From the tribe of Zebulun, same area, the rest of the children of Merari were given Rimon with its common lands and Tabor with its common lands. And on the other side of the Jordan, across from Jericho on the east side of the Jordan, we just studied those two and a half tribes the other night, they were given from the tribe of Reuben, Bezer in the wilderness with its common lands, Jazza with its common lands, Kedemoth with its common lands, Mephoth with its common lands, and from the tribe of Gad, Ramoth and Gilead with its common lands, Mahaniam with its common lands, Heshbon with its common lands, and Jazer with its common lands. So God took care of the Levites. By lot, they were subdivided to find their place and where they'd be. And if you read this, you go like, well, why is that important? Well, you ever try and find a place to live when you move somewhere? That's why it's important. We moved to Vermont with a boxer. And when you're coming from the south, moving to New England, and you want to rent a house, and you've got a boxer, a dog, you know when you go to find me a place to live place back in the 90s before all the internet, and you say, we need a place to rent. And you know, like, I don't have a job yet. We're starting a church. And you got a dog? Let me tell you, you'll take any common land the lot falls to. You gave me a choice here, I'd go with Zebulun and Naphtali with the coast, the green, you know, Megiddo, Fertile Valley, a little sea breeze, a little wind swell every few days, you know, get out there, body surf, whatever, back in the day. I don't want to be on the other side of the Dead Sea with those Reubenites. Who wants to be there? You know, the Reubenites are on the other side of the Dead Sea with Mount Nebo. I don't need to see where Moses died. I want to be with the sea breeze. Still, nonetheless, God has a place for everybody, and we've looked at that as we've gone through this. Now, as we go forward, we get some of these other tribes. So this is, this is important contextually because, again, they're coming back from captivity. And if you're a remnant of Issachar, this is your heritage. It's important to know where you come from because it helps you know where you're going. If you can learn from your past, you can grow in your present, and you can prosper in your future. The sons of Issachar were, chapter 7, verse 1. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Pua, Jashub, Shimron, four and all. The sons of Tola were Uzi, Raphaiah, Jeriel, Jamiah, Jibsam, and Shemuel, heads of their father's house. The sons of Tola were mighty men of valor in their generations. Their number in the days of David were 22,600. The sons of Uzi were Izariah, and the sons of Izrahiah were Michael, Obadiah, Joel, Ishiah. All five of them were chief men, and with them by their generations, according to their father's houses, were 36,000 troops ready for war, for they had many wives and sons. So they had a lot, they were big families. Now their brethren among all the families of Issachar were mighty men of valor, listed in their genealogies, by their genealogies, 87,000 in all. Big group of people. Now we get the tribe of Benjamin, and we're moving towards some application. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becker, and Jediel, three in all. The sons of Bil were Esbon, Uzi, Uziel, Jeremoth, and Eri, five in all. They were heads of their father's houses. They were listed in the genealogies, 22,000, 34 mighty men of valor. The sons of Becker were Zemorah, Joash, Elizur, Eloenai, Omri, Jeremoth, Abijah, Anioth, Elameth. All these were the sons of Becker. And they were recorded by genealogy according to their generation, heads of their father's houses, 22,200 mighty men of valor. The sons of Jedel were Bilhah, and the sons of Bilhah were 
Jeush, Benjamin, Ehud. That Ehud is Ehud from the book of Judges, by the way, one of the great judges that took out Eglon. So that's our Ehud. His name pops up again here in this list. Shana, Zethon, Tarshish, and Ashahar. All these sons of Jediel were heads of their father's houses. There were 17,200 mighty men of valor fit to go out for war and battle. Shufim and Hufim were the sons of Ur, and Humji were the sons of Ahur. So stop there. So this phrase, because in going through Chronicles, and we get you know these things that are repetitive by nature, you look for the things that stand out, and this is the first time we see this phrase, fit to go out for war and battle. Now, we got something similar to this that we looked at in application on Saturday night with Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribes of Manasseh, that they were skillful at what they did, but here it's fit to go out for battle. And I look at this phrase, again, contextually, we talked about with war, you want people that are fit to go out to war, right? Like, the Navy SEALs are so respected because they've gone through so much to be a Navy SEAL just to even get in the program, the BUDS program, as they call it, and to not quit is amazing. You know, with the Navy SEALs, they have a bell you ring. When you say, I can't take anymore and I'm over it, you get up and you ring the bell. You tap out, as they say. You know, you, you tap out. And a lot, of, a lot of them tap out because they do things that are not what the normal human being would do with their body. They're so elitely trained and so repetitively trained that they keep they're calm in the most intense situations and execute the plan. And pararescue with the Air Force is similar. Green Berets is also similar. It's a more elite level. And I've said this before. I'm not about war, but if someone's coming at us and we're at war, I sure hope our guys are better prepared than the other guys, right? That they're skillfully, properly prepared for war. That principle that, I mean, right now with the war going on in Europe with the Ukrainians and Russians, I guess the jury's out, like, like, who's actually more skillful in war? It's like a quagmire now. It's almost like a little Vietnam in Europe right now. Like, no one, it's back and forth, and, you know, the Russians always say they can outlast the amount of bullets you have, and the Ukrainians have all the U.S. armament, and, but even so, there's a limit to what we can provide, and who even knows? But that's the context. But how about being fit to go out for the Lord? To fit to be, go out for the Lord. I come from the era of Calvary Chapel pastors where they went out in droves in the 90s. You know, many of you saw the Jesus Revolution movie. Amazing, right? Just an amazing movie, what God did. We all, the great glory story in there, Pastor Chuck, it's beautifully told, it's accurate historically, it's amazing. When I got saved in the late 80s and became a part of the Calvary movement, it was still pretty fresh, and a lot of people were going out and planting churches. And Chuck approached church planting, Pastor Chuck, the way he did a lot of things. Hey, if the Lord's in it, it'll last. If he's not, it won't. And so it was fairly easy for people to get a little dove flag, if you will, and go out and claim their territory and say, I'm Calvary Chapel here. And, you know, America's got lots of big cities. And so they went out in droves. And the time I went to Virginia Beach with Jennifer to start the church at Calvary Chapel Hampton Roads, Two other churches arrived at the same time, essentially, to start a Calvary Chapel in Virginia Beach at the same time in a city of half a million people. Norfolk included Chesapeake. It's all about a million people. And it was just kind of, it was kind of weird, you know? Like, we all arrived at the same time. One of the guys called me up and said, God would never tell him to start the church and me to start the church, and he knows God called him to start the church, so I'm not called to start the church. And I wrecked his vacation because he heard I was going to start a church in Virginia Beach. True story. 
His theology was different than Calvary Chapel, and within nine months, he had nothing to do with Calvary Chapel. To his credit, he did stay in the area, and the last I knew, he was still there. But the best thing he ever did was not identify with Calvary Chapel because his theology, trust me, was not Calvary theology. So he was actually misleading people, and a number of Calvary people went to the church, and they actually asked for their tithes back, and he called me to ask me to call the wolves off of him, and I said, that's your problem with them. You know, we figured it out. <laughs> uh, but I did tell the people to stop bugging them. But it was just weird, you know? It was weird. Then another guy came back on his own volition at the same time started the church, and then through unfaithfulness to his wife, we ended up helping take care of his wife and kids before they all went different directions, got divorced, and scattered. In the 90s, so many people went out to start churches in Calvary and Vineyard and these types of movements because there was such a freedom that was a carryover from that. And so many of those churches crashed and burned. And Pastor Chuck came up with a basic philosophy toward that. He would tell the guys, give it two years. He wouldn't let anyone come back in less than two years. Yeah, you know, Make the fellas stick it out. Two years for a church plant, and then he might give them a job to clean toilets when they came back or something. But he encouraged all of us, never quit until two years. Don't move on unless it's two years or something of that nature. That's why I felt like a failure coming back from Vermont, because we're only there for 15 months. Now, we left someone there, and the church lasted for over, it lasted almost two decades, but still, that's the way it worked. We watched so many people at that time, and some of you might remember this, they just would go out like, I'm called. But in many cases, they weren't prepared to do a work. And that's why they crashed and burned. One of the things that really helped me when I was pastoring in Virginia Beach was that I took small business management in junior college in 1987. Now, my book would be obsolete by now, for sure. It was obsolete by the mid-90s. In fact, most of what you learn in college is obsolete within five years nowadays. But it was obsolete. Still, the principles I learned in small business management really helped me with the financial side of pastoring a church. Because 9 out of 10 church plants fail because the people are like, oh, the Lord's in it. But they have no, they've got the creativity, but they don't have the metrics. they got right brain, but no left brain. You need both. And you need the mind of the, the, mind of the Spirit over all, both those things. So when it says here that you're fit to go out for war, I naturally think about people going out in ministry, making sure they're fit. When we sent Brian Jameson out after five years serving with me as associate, he was fit to go out to war. And about 20% of our congregation went with them. And they planted that church in Orange, Orange County Christian Fellowship, and they're still thriving to this day because they were properly prepared and fit to go to war. Because you don't know a spiritual battle until you step into ministry as a deacon. And you don't know a big boy battle until you step into ministry as a pastor. And you do not know what it's like to have the devil knock on your front door until you're a lead pastor. And Brian and Heidi survived that. One could argue that the church even cost them their daughter. Because ministry is paid with sacrifice. And for someone like me, when I did the funeral for his 10-year-old daughter who died of cancer, you, you know, you can't lead people where you haven't been. And, and Brian and Heidi have been severely wounded by the Lord in the human experience, and they were prepared to go out and lead, and they're capable of leading, and it's those wounds of life that give you credibility when you do lead and you minister. So I look at this text, fit to go out to war, and I ask myself, am I fit to go out to war for the next chapter of my life? At whatever it is in my life that God wants to do. Are you fit for the next chapter? Because it's always forward, onward, and upward with the Lord, and we're going from glory to glory. So body of Christ, worship generation, are we preparing ourselves? Are we giving our best right now for what God's doing? And in so doing, are we preparing ourselves for what's coming next? 
See, my son Timmy with Maritime, I was talking with Jeff Anderson before service about this. Timmy went to Cal Maritime for four years, every morning, 7.30 in a uniform. Roll call, like, in a, like a military academy. His major was maritime transportation. He got certified every semester for forklift operating, crane operating, rescue boat operating, all the certification, certified for TSA kind of stuff, uh, Coast Guard, drug trafficking, all these things he was certified for. Then he left college and he went to Dutch Harbor in Alaska for two years on a tug in blizzards and 50-foot seas. Then he worked in the port of Long Beach on the ship that was an oil cleanup ship that took people back and forth to the oil derricks, the seven of them that got girls' names, like a bus driver. Then he drove the whale watcher over here in, Honey, in Newport Harbor for two years, and now he's captain of your Catalina Flyer with 600 people, driving twice a day through those busy traffic lanes of all the ships out there, like 600 souls entrusted to him on a full, full, full load in the summertime. But he was prepared every part of the way. And he was hired for this job because he was fully prepared. He had all the certifications. One time the Coast Guard boarded their ship in Dutch Harbor. And none of the guys on the ship had this certification for, like, uh, it's like an anti-terrorism thing. And Timmy's like the lowest guy. He's the in the galley cooking. He's like, I've got that certification. Pulled it out. There it is. Coast Guard's like, all right, there's no fine. The captain's like, come to me. Oh, you mean you had it. But he was probably prepared every part of the way to be where he's at. When you get on that Catalina flyer to go to Catalina this summer, don't you want someone probably prepared at each step of the way to drive you through the shipping lanes to Catalina through the channel? Who wants to go on a ship with a drunk captain or a scurvy dog pirate? Who wants to get on a... Like, see, my point is this. Every season of life prepares us, and it's for the next thing. And if we don't let God work in us right now to prepare us for in our lives right now, we're going to miss what he has for the next thing, and we won't be ready. And I often say this about Virginia. The last nine months I was at Calvary Vista in 1990 before we went to Virginia, my mind was so focused on Virginia that I didn't seal the fruit on Vista. And I often tell people, every lesson I learned the first year of ministry in Virginia, God tried to teach me in the last year of ministry in Vista. So I did go out. I did have some training that allowed me to not crash and burn everything. And we did make it. We did survive. And the church was very fruitful. But let me tell you, I took a couple laps around the track because I didn't learn those lessons the last year I was in Vista. So the application is this, worship generation. Prepare yourself for, to be the best not only where you're at, but to prepare yourself where you see God taking you. Hudson Taylor, before he went to China, for the last two years he's in England, the great missionary, he disciplined his diet, he disciplined his life, and he went out sharing his faith on the streets with everyday people because he did, what he did in England the last two years before he left is he prepared himself for what he would do in China. And he prepared himself. So when he arrived in Peking or whatever it was when he arrived there, he had been spending the last two years exercising those muscles, the spiritual muscles, the sharing of your faith, the rejection, the acceptance, the reading of a situation, the spiritual battle. He was prepared for it. So the great application here is these guys are going to war and anything, we talked about this last week with conflict and topical application. Anything that's God's will in our life has a conflict to it because it's light advancing its darkness. And so it's important that we fill our cup, if you will, where we're at, not only to be the, the best we can be as under the Lord right now, but we really are preparing ourselves for where the Lord's taking us as well. And again, we've said this, to whom 
Much is given, much is required, and to him or her who has, more will be given. That's the preparation. Why would God take you onward to other things if you haven't prepared yourself or myself in the current situation? If we don't get better with the Lord and grow on a daily basis in character, conduct, and the calling, and the gifts being stirred up, if we don't give those things to the Lord and let him really make us excellent in those things he's called us to, practically and spiritually, we're not ready for the next thing. And eternity is the ultimate thing. So everything God's doing in time is the next thing to get us ready for the real thing, the eternal thing. And that's my worldview at 61. That's why I want to let God do everything he wants to do in my life right now because I'm not focused so much on what he's going to be doing when I'm 67 or 75. I'm focused on what he's going to be doing with me in eternity, in glory. My motive is much higher than temporal gain that gets left behind for other people to manage. My motive is to be fully ready for what comes to me when the day Christ comes for me. And my motive in teaching you and tending this flock is to be the same for you. Oh, lots of fruit till we go. But I want to make sure you're ready for when you get to the eternity and the dimension of glory. And that's why it's important we give our best today and prepare ourselves for our best tomorrow. And the best way to be prepared for our best tomorrow is to give our best today. All things as unto the Lord. The pursuit of excellence in all things to the glory of the Lord. Every day, better and better with the Lord, because it is better and better. Every day becoming that person Christ wants us to be here and now for all eternity. Now we read on. Now we get these other tribes, and this will wrap up the text for us tonight. So, verse 13. Naphtali, the tribe. The sons of Naphtali were Jahaziel, Guni, Jezer, Shulam, the sons of Bilhah. The descendants of Manasseh, his Syrian concubine, bore him Machir, the father of Gilead, the father of Asareel. Machir took his wife, the sister of Hufim and Sufim, whose, names, whose name was Maka. The name of Gilead's grandson was Zolophad, but Zolophad only begot daughters. Those, of course, Zolophad and the daughters of Zolophad that we read about back in uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, they, they set a whole new principle for inheritance before Moses and the Lord. It's a wonderful story. Verse 16. Maka, the wife of Machir, bore a son, and she called his name Perish. The name of his brother was Sheresh, and his sons were Ulam and Rakam. The sons of Ulam was Bedan, and these were the descendants of Gilead, the sons of Micah, the son of, of Manasseh. His sister, Hamalekatheth, bore Ishad, Abizir, Mahla, and the sons of Shemadiah were Ahin, Shechem, Liki, and Aniam. Now we get Ephraim, subdivision of Joseph. Verse 20. The sons of Ephraim were Shutelah, Barad his son, Tehoth his son, Eldah his son, Tahath his son, Zaba his son, Shulah his son, Ezer and Eliad. The men of Gath who were born in that land killed them because they came down to take away their cattle. And then Ephraim, their father, mourned many days, and his brethren came to comfort him. And when he went into his wife, she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Bariah, because tragedy had come upon his house. So that's kind of similar, right, to the prayer of Jabez. His mom called him sorrow. Here, dad names his son tragedy. Verse 24. Now his daughter was Shirah, who built lower and upper Beth Horon, and Uzin Shirah, and Rapha with his son, as well as Reshef and Tela his son, Tahan his son, Ladan his son, Amahud his son, 
Elishama his son, Nun his son, and Joshua his son. Now, their possessions and dwelling places were Bethel and its towns, in the east, Narin, to the west, Gezer and its towns, and Shechem and its towns, as far as Ayah and its towns. And by the borders of the children of Manasseh were Beshinin and its towns, Tanakh and its towns, Megiddo and its towns, Dor and its towns, and these dwelt the children of Joseph, the son of Israel, because remember Ephraim and Manasseh are subdivisions for the tribe of Joseph. Verse 30. The sons of Asher were Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, their sister Sarah, Sarah. The sons of Beriah were Heber and Malchiel, who was the father of Bizrioth. And Heber begot Jephlet, Shomer, Hotham, and their sister Shua. The sons of Jephlet were Pashak, Bimhal, and Ashbeth. These were the children of, of Jephlet. The sons of Shemer were Ahi, Rogah, Jehabah, and Aram. And the sons of his brothers were Helam, were Zohar, Imna, Shilesh, Amal. The sons of Zophah were Sua, Harnifer, Shul, Beri, Imra, Bezer, Had, Shama, Shilshah, Jithron, and Bera. The sons of Jether were Jeph, Unune, Pisfaf, and Era. The sons of Ula were Ara, Haniel, Rizia, and these were the children of Asher, heads of their father's houses, choice men, mighty men of valor, chief leaders, and they were recorded by genealogies among the army fit for battle. Their numbers were 26,000. So this really kind of pretty much gets us close to turning the corner on all the names. I mean, we still get names, but this is the, this kind of like a mountaintop, right? And we, we got these names and they're here for a reason. I do point out to you where it says in Ephraim that uh, where the sons were killed in, in theft, that's a very sad story. And sometimes life has sad stories, doesn't it? And I would just remind us, whatever sadness comes in our story, where it tells us in 2 Corinthians that the God of all comfort comforts us in whatever we're facing. And as he comforts us, he gives us the capacity to experience his comfort and to share that comfort with others. And when you read a story like that, and some of the names are kid tragedy, the first thing I think of is the first thing you think of, God help us to avoid tragedy. But they happen. And all I can say is, if and when we ever face tragedy, may we do what we should always do, put Jesus and eternity before our eyes and face it with faith and our hearts in eternity. Yes and amen.